Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello, everybody, and today we have another special episode for our listeners in cool Canadian history land. Just a couple of days ago, of course, we released a very special episode where we interviewed Alex Fitzgerald Black of the Juno Beach Center to talk about all things D-Day in the wake of the 75th anniversary. Well, today, this episode is coming out on the 6th of June. That is 75 years ago today, the Canadians, the British, the Americans attacked the beaches of Normandy in the largest combined arms operation in the history of the world to help liberate Western Europe and bring about the end of the Second World War. Now, today, as part of our release, we are going to do an hour episode of The Voices of D-Day. And this is uh, an interview-guided format of first-hand accounts of Canadian soldiers, sailors, and airmen who were there on the day who participated in the momentous operation. And we have to give a big shout-out to Alex Fitzgerald Black at the Juno Beach Center and his podcast, Juno Beach and Beyond. I suggest you all check it out because, of course, Alex did the groundwork on all of this and was kind enough to share this episode with us at Cool Canadian History in order to get the voices of D-Day out there for all listeners to enjoy. So I really hope you enjoy listening to the people talk about their own experiences on D-Day and get a real sense of what it was like for these uh, uh, young people to participate in this epic operation. And again, I just want to remind our listeners that if you like what you hear, go and give some love to the Juno Beach Center. Go and give some love uh, to the Juno Beach Center's podcast, Juno Beach and Beyond, on all podcast listening devices. And of course, you can find the website, junobeach.org. Enjoy. This is Matthew Holton of the CBC, speaking from England. I came back this morning from France. France, where our assault formations are ashore, and now fighting like wildcats to hold the bridgeheads to hold them against German generals and German armies who know that in the next few days they either throw us into the sea or lose the war. I've come back for a few hours to tell you what I can of what I saw 
in the few immortal hours in which we crashed through the famous German West Wall, and so began the liberation of France and of Europe and of the world. I went in with the Canadian assault formation. I've come back to tell you how those superb British and Canadian assault troops went almost contemptuously through minefields and curtains of machine gun fire to clear the beaches and storm the casemates and rush the pillboxes and kill the Germans with the bayonet, those that didn't surrender, and many did surrender, and then push on to their objectives miles beyond. I've come back to tell what it felt like when the dream came true, the dream of going back to France, what it felt like to swim and wade ashore and go up the shell-swept beach and of the wild, weeping, lovely welcome of our liberated friends. But where and how should one begin? And what should one say after taking part in one of the greatest and most dramatic events of all time? Hello and welcome to Juno Beach and Beyond, Canada's Second World War podcast. I'm your host, Alex Black, Digital Projects Coordinator at the Juno Beach Centre Association. Seventy-five years ago, Canadians participated in one of the most formative events of the 20th century. The airborne and seaborne landings in Normandy on June 6, 1944, saw American, British, Canadian, and other Allied forces return to France to stay for the first time since 1940. Of the over 150,000 troops landed in the invasion, over 14,000 were Canadian, landing by sea on Juneau Beach or by air with the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion. Thousands more served in the naval and air armadas, protecting and transporting the invasion force to France. D-Day was a great and tragic day. The success of the invasion sparked the liberation of Northwest Europe and marked the beginning of the end of Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany. Canada's price of victory on that day was high. The Canadian Army lost 340 soldiers killed, 574 wounded, and 47 captured on or beyond Juneau Beach. Of the 543 paratroopers of 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion who jumped into Normandy, 19 were killed, 10 were wounded, and 84 were captured on D-Day. Not to be forgotten, the Royal Canadian Air Force lost 22 airmen killed, while the Royal Canadian Navy appears to have miraculously avoided any fatal casualties though several were wounded, especially those operating landing craft, to bring the troops ashore. All figures considered, Canada lost 381 killed, over 584 wounded, and 131 captured on June 6, 1944. Many more survived the invasion, but their numbers continued to dwindle over seven decades later. Thankfully, projects like Blake Heathcote's Testaments of Honor and Don Foster's Legacy of Honor, among others, are hard at work preserving the memories of those who served for present and future generations. Today's episode, Canada's D-Day Story, draws on veteran testimonies from these two projects. Canadian veterans take us through their unique D-Day experiences. You'll also hear footage from wartime newsreels and audio recordings from the CBC's digital archives. The latter includes the voices of Canadian war correspondents like Matthew Halton, reporting on or shortly after D-Day. These sources allow us to weave a Canadian narrative through this epic event that changed the world on a single day in June 1944. 
This is Canada's D-Day story. Canada's war effort is a voluntary effort. I've always said it was the Grey Cup, the Stanley Cup, the World Series all played the same day. I'm not only there, but I'm playing. And uh, that was my personal reaction. And I, I, I don't think there's anybody that, that really wasn't fired up. If the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Week by week, until the fateful D-Day, Allied invasion preparations shaped up on a staggering scale. The million and one details took on a pattern against a backdrop of suspense and anticipation on the part of forces and civilians in Britain and jittery Germans across the Channel. Never before in the world's history has a military operation been so heralded by both sides as was the Second Front. In this first segment, we'll cover how Canadian soldiers, sailors, and airmen prepared for D-Day. Training was constant and unrelenting. This helped to fuel the men's anticipation for the invasion. We begin with Lieutenant Garth Webb, a gun position officer with the 14th Field Artillery Regiment. And everybody was, we were keen. And then, of course, when we found out we were going to be involved in D-Day, we got pretty excited and we, we were very, we were busy, busy, busy learning, learning these track vehicles, which we had never had and how to drive them and, and how to waterproof them. And we trained and trained and trained. And we were, we were, in the last few weeks, we were combined together. And then we were, we were down at the docks in Southampton and, and, we knew what was going on. I've always said it was the Grey Cup, the Stanley Cup, the World Series all played the same day. I'm not only there, but I'm playing. And uh, that was my personal reaction. And I, I, I don't think there's anybody that, that really wasn't fired up and excited. And, and uh... Garth mentioned how busy his unit was learning new tracked vehicles. 14th Field Regiment normally used 25-pounder guns towed by a gun tractor or truck. For D-Day, they were upgraded to M7 Priest 105mm self-propelled guns from U.S. Army stocks. This would give them added mobility to get off the beach. Canadian armored units were also given new equipment for D-Day. They were equipped with duplex-drive Sherman tanks. I'll let Captain Bob Grant of the Fort Garry Horse explain. And that was a great morale builder because this was obviously special, highly secret equipment. No, we were under screens. But it was such secret equipment that it, nobody knew about it and it was never, never released until long after the war was over. The trick was to make a tank float. Now, if, if you made it float, it, it was too light. Not enough armor on. An Austrian who had escaped to England came up with this idea to put a, a band around the tank and mount on that platform, sort of, mount a canvas screen, which would be just above the tracks, the tank. And you pump that screen up with air, compressed air bottles around the tank. 
and the screen would go up so if I was standing on top of the tank I could barely see over so it, so it was well above the tank and it displaced enough water to float a normal 30-ton tank. Just like today, training in the infantry was intensely physical. This was particularly important for the men of the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion, who would drop behind enemy lines before the seaborne assault to help secure a solid flank to the east of the invasion beaches. Private John de Vries picks up the story with parachute training in Britain. And we were shipped up to Ringley, England, where we immediately had to go through the training that the Britons went through. Got our wings in, in Ringway. From then on, it was field training constantly. And always before breakfast, you had a five-mile run. A 10-mile hike, a 10-mile run, you had a 15-mile hike, a 15-mile run, you had a 20-mile hike, a 20-mile run. You had to do those on a regular basis. I think it was once, a, almost once a month. As anticipation built, the men were never entirely sure when D-Day would happen. George Van Haff served aboard HMCS Prince David, a cruise liner converted into an armed merchant cruiser and medium-sized infantry landing ship. We went down to the south coast and uh, we did exercises for the invasion. We'd go into Southampton or Portsmouth or one of those places and we'd pick up a load of troops. And, of course, we'd, we'd get up in the morning and be action stations and everybody would say, is that France? Does that look like France? Well, how the hell do I know? I've never seen France before, you know. But the, the day we took on the, the um, Chaudier Regiment, we landed the Canadian Regiment at D-Day. Well, the landings took place on the 6th of June. We brought them on board on the 4th. And they came on board. We went down and anchored at our usual place at the Isle of Wight, known as Area 4. And then we had uh, a big talk from the captain. We're going the next morning. And uh, then we got through on the armament broadcast and said it had been delayed for 24 hours. Not to be forgotten is the fact that the Royal Canadian Navy and the Royal Canadian Air Force were already hard at work preparing the English Channel and France for the invasion. Alex Polowin sailed aboard HMCS Huron, one of the Canadian Navy's tribal-class destroyers. Uh want to start talking about the, the invasion D-Day. Actually, to me, it was a wonderful feeling. Uh, Winston Churchill gave me a sense of security. Whatever he said, I believed him. He got on there on June the 5th, and, and uh, I, can, I can just shut my eyes and bring back the time. June the 6th. Now, our job, like many people pointed out to me, well, you guys were lucky. You, you bombarded the coast and then you left. Nothing like that. No, we were in the channel about seven months. Our job was to protect the people that were going, that were going in for D-Day, their, their, their ships, their boats that were there. That was our job, to find the enemy ships that were doing that, that were coming down to do that. We did. We prevented them. The Royal Canadian Air Force supplied some 37 squadrons of aircraft for D-Day. Thousands of Canadians also served in Royal Air Force squadrons. 
One of them was squadron leader James Francis Stocky Edwards, who, after tours in North Africa and Italy, was one of Canada's highest-scoring air aces of the war. We got word from 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 the group to, that we're going back to England for D Day, and and the uh, one one uh, I guess the fifth of June we were called over to the commander's uh, office, and uh, he was giving a briefing on tomorrow morning, boys, is when we go. Aerial reconnaissance was crucial for the Allies on D Day. Intelligence on enemy positions, defenses, and troop movements would give the Allies an advantage. Flying Officer Richard Romer picks up the story. And 430 Squadron was fighter reconnaissance, Canadian. And over the winter, uh, we had a lot of experience in terms of going across the channel. And we began to photograph uh, either vertically, we had cameras underneath or up the side. We began to photograph as we approached D-Day, uh, we would know when it was coming because we would be ordered to paint black and white stripes on our airplanes in order to identify us visually to people on the ground or people in the air as allied. Uh, that night, on the night of the 5th, June the 5th, uh, our group captain, Ernie Moncrief, uh, briefed us all saying, this is what's happening. Uh, tomorrow morning, landing craft will be hitting the beaches in Normandy, and our role uh, is to be there to support them with reconnaissance, uh, all the things that we have been trained to do. So we knew exactly at that point where the invasion was going to be. On June 8, 1944, CBC war correspondent Matthew Halton, who had been with the Canadian Assault Forces on D-Day, returned to England with news from the front. Here is how he described his preparations for witnessing the great military operation, which was set to unfold. I can only describe some of what I saw in those two splendid and terrible days. First, there was the strain of the last hours in London, waiting for the telephone to ring and summon us away. And then there were the few days spent in the loveliness of the country. The country had a special beauty, and a sharp poignancy now that one was leaving it on such a dangerous adventure. One thing I shall never, never forget is being wakened just before sunrise on that last day by the dawn chorus of the singing birds, dozens of them, especially the nightingales. Then there was the exciting hour when we were briefed, the hour when we learned at last what the world was holding its breath to know, where we were going and when, and it was to France. Most of us had guessed France, of course, but some had thought Denmark and some Holland. I'd guessed that we'd smash in between Calais and Dunkirk and make a bold effort to cut France off from Germany. As we now know, the Allies landed on June 6, 1944, in Normandy, France, between the Cotentin Peninsula in the west and the mouth of the Orne River in the east. Before they got there, however, the naval armada had to cross the English Channel. Troops, tanks, and transport are all loaded on 4,000 ships. 
they put to sea to await the crucial moment. Guarding them are the guns of two mighty task forces of the combined Navy. Overhead, the Air Forces provide an invulnerable protective ceiling. There was no turning back now. Our veterans share their experience of crossing the Channel in Segment 2. War correspondent Matthew Halton picks up where he left off on June 4th. Then there was a 24-hour postponement and the awful strain. We waited tensely all one day, lest there should be news of a second postponement. The weather didn't look too good, but then the word came to go, and the greatest armada has ever seen steamed out toward France and the dark. We waved goodbye to England long before sunset, and we gasped and gaped at the wonderful sight. As the hundreds and thousands of invasion craft, flotilla after flotilla, deployed into lines astern, warships and big troop carriers and headquarters ships and assault landing craft and tank landing ships and assault craft of every description, covering the waters in every direction. People on shore were waving. They must have known that this was it that this was the eve of D-Day. In the lounge of our ship that night, we pored over our maps. But then we played bridge, or gathered round the piano and sang. We were going where our fathers and brothers had gone 25 years ago, and we sang the same songs they sang. There was one we sang more than others. There's a long, long trail a-winding. And I began to wonder if it wasn't a dream after all. Playing bridge and singing as we approach the beaches of Hitler's Europe. Dave Arxey was a rifleman with the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada, slated to land at Bernier-sur-Mer, in the center of Juneau Beach. He recalls when they put to sea. On the 5th, our major uh, got on the PA system, and he said, D-Day is tomorrow. And that's when we knew it was going to be on the 6th of June. And we were still just off Plymouth, and we'd been there for five days. And then we moved out and grouped up sometime during the night. Trooper Hugh Buckley was a gunner operator on a Stuart Light tank in the Sherbrooke Fusiliers Reconnaissance Troop. He gives us his impression of the vast armada assembled for D-Day. So then I was with them on D-Day, and we departed from um, Southampton, and we it was very impressive, because crossing the, the channel, and were, we woke up in the morning, and there were, I mean, thousands of ships from... And the reassuring thing was there's no way anybody could stop this invasion. I mean, it just, uh, once it got going, there was so much of it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Uh, 
English Channel was a contested body of water, and the Germans had laid a minefield to defend against the invasion. Warships helped the Armada arrive unscathed. Leonard Brockington, a CBC correspondent aboard the Canadian destroyer HMCS Sioux, describes the crossing in detail from the perspective of an Allied sailor. On the morning of the Monday, the captain spoke on the ship's radio to all mess decks and told them the day was at hand. Whatever thoughts were in men's minds as we set out to shepherd our sheep on that great morning, I know that no man wished to be elsewhere. At ten minutes past twelve on Monday morning, we left Seaview in the Isle of Wight, making for Rendezvous Z. Led by the vigilant, we proceeded up Channel 8 with the vigilant and the minesweepers. We passed through all the gradations of watchfulness, from cruising stations to defense stations to action stations. Individually, we acted as escort for the minesweeping flotilla. Our group consisted of eight minesweepers, four dam layers, three minesweeping motor launches, and four other minesweepers of the BYMS class. We formed up directly astern the minesweepers and started off for the coast of France. During the first part of the trip, sweeping was not necessary as we were in English waters. But early that night as we approached enemy waters, the sweepers formed up on a diagonal line and put out their sweeps. They were followed by dam layers, laying buoys marked by distinctive flags and lights to show where the channel was. It was a sight of strange beauty to see the phosphorescent waves and our little street lights bobbing on the little buoys and the gray night clouds hanging low. And above them, we could hear a never-ending stream of planes. Perhaps for the enemy, they zoomed and roared. But for us, they murmured and purred because they were our own. The minesweepers had been given instructions that since the force which was to use the channel, only about 400 yards wide, which they were sweeping, would be made up of many small vessels with few aids to navigation, the minesweepers should under no circumstances deviate from their course. Their motto was one only, straight ahead. The duty of the fleet destroyers, of which we were one, was to protect the minesweepers from any surface or underwater attack and to see that they were not hampered in any way from carrying out their task. We knew that for a month British and American bombers had pounded the coast to which we were proceeding. We knew how that night and the following morning the most highly concentrated air attack would be continued. We had our first sight of anti-aircraft flashes and fires burning south of west about 20 miles from the coast. At about midnight, our sound apparatus recorded the first underwater explosion, presumably a mine. During our journey, we recorded nine such explosions in our channel. At 11 minutes past 12, nearly midnight, we made a strategic turn of 180 degrees back to England with the object of confusing the enemy's listening devices as we knew that from the time of our departure, he had been able to record our approach. At seven minutes past one, we turned back again towards France. At three minutes past four, we were a little ahead of our schedule and found ourselves too close to the coast. We turned back again, and at 4.45, resumed our journey to France 
in order not to arrive at our rendezvous before our time. As the invasion fleet maneuvered into position, waves of Allied transport planes took off from bases across southern England. Among them were the over 500 men from 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion. As part of the 6th British Airborne Division, the battalion's job was to secure the eastern flank of the landings. Although their drop was scattered, the battalion succeeded in all of its tasks. John de Vries explains. We landed around midnight. The, the assault company was to capture the DZ, get rid of any opposition there. The battalion was to come in a half an hour later with the whole division. Our, our battalion led the whole division in. The Out of the 120 men in our stick, as far as I know, as I heard hearsay from the others, only 35 men landed on the field. That 35 men and a few stragglers uh, later carried out all the objectives. From the battalion, there was actually a total spread of almost 40 miles between, from one extreme to the other. I landed about, I don't know how many miles away, six, seven miles away. Uh, just poor navigation. I think there was four of us in total. And we were still, I was headed in the right direction. It was almost daylight when gliders started coming in. And from that point, we knew where we had to be. As Private DeVries and his section searched for their comrades, the seaborne assaults began. Before dawn, Tuesday, June 6th, the word is given, advance. The forces of liberation move to their rendezvous with destiny. The invasion is on. In segment three, Canadian veterans recall the tough fight for Juneau Beach. CBC correspondent Leonard Brockington picks up his story as the invasion fleet arrived off Normandy and began bombarding the coast. We saw the coast shattered from end to end by the pattern bombing of hundreds of flying fortresses. At 5.30, it was daylight, and what a sight met our gaze. A great semicircle of hundreds of ships lay off the enemy's coast. At 5.31, the first cruisers, the Sheffield and the Belfast, opened fire. We were then about 12,000 yards off benet sur la mer There was no opposition from any shore batteries, in the air or from the sea. At 5.43, the Sioux took its first preliminary bearings on the target and started to move in. At 5.45 the shore batteries started to answer. At six o'clock, we were in bombardment position two miles from the shore. At 6.20, the Kempenfeld opened fire. At 6.40, the Sioux anchored. And at 7.10, with a target of 10,700 yards, the captain ordered our gunners to engage the enemy. I was on the bridge, sitting in the high chair, and I now know what the expression to knock your block off means. At 7.34, we were still bombarding and had obliterated our direct target. At 7.38, we received a new target. And at 7.48, we completed our direct bombardment. From then on, throughout the day, there was constant activity and fitful firing on sea and on land. But not much for the disappointed Sioux. Monitors with 16-inch guns, cruisers with 6- and 8-inch guns continued their indirect bombardment. Our shorter range would only imperil our own men. 
Thunder answered thunder. Tanks went ashore. Guns went ashore. Men went ashore. Fires broke out. The coast was enveloped in smoke which cleared away and returned in changing faces. By five minutes past eight, everybody was standing around watching the planes overhead. As those of us who were able to do so breakfasted on bacon and beans, we listened to the BBC announcing the landing. At 7.57, the first landing force hit the beaches. At 10 minutes after 8, the first landing craft started to return. At 8.30, enemy shells dropped close to our port quarter. And that was the last I saw of enemy action from the land against the fleet. Over 80% of Canadian Army casualties in the Juno sector on D-Day happened within the sight of shore. Jim Parks, a mortar man with the Royal Winnipeg Rifles, landed just ahead of the first wave assault near Corsoul-sur-Mer. He describes how things didn't go according to plan on the beach. June the 6th, well, uh, what they did with us, I was the mortar carriers. So we were in a landing craft tank, and our, our time of landing was H-2. H hour is a time of where our assault landing craft for the infantry to come in. Minus two that we're supposed to land two minutes ahead of time. Because on our landing craft tank, we had two armored bulldozers with long ropes with hooks on them. They were to go off, and when they got on the shore, they, were to, they had two sappers to hook on these hooks onto these obstacles in the water and pull them out. And then the landing craft would come in. That's the whole theory. It didn't work out that way because our boat was hit, the landing craft went in, and something got hung up on the, uh, on the obstacles in the water, a couple of a few of them got hit the bombs and uh, not our not our particular braid but uh, one of the other brigades they had a, a few landing craft that they hit the explosion blew the boat up with the men in it but our our boat we had uh, they dropped us off in water too deep and our, our mortar carriers went into the water and we end up swimming now on the way there I trying to swim into shore I got sideswiped by a one of the landing craft come in and you get pushed into the water and all I could see was stars because I swallowed a lot of water, right? And you see stars and and my foot touched the touched the bottom and give you a little adrenaline and popped up and I started started to wing my way into the water into the shore. The orders were that that boat, every boat that went to shore in that first wave or so to ram the beach so they wouldn't have to be in the water. But he didn't do that we got dropped off too soon. Otherwise, we wouldn't have got wet. We'd have had all our stuff. But everything we had was stuck on the boat. It was pretty well on the beach itself. We'd, uh, once we'd been there, and my, my brother was about five, his crew was to come in a, just a few minutes after me. And they landed, and everybody landed in the same place they're supposed to land. Because he, he landed not too far away, and I, I, saw, his, I saw his carrier... I could tell by the number, his uh, number, he was M, I think he was M3 and M4, that was his, his carriers, and they got off, and then he, he, they come right over to where we were, and he, he spotted me. Our officer came in about, well, I guess about 12 or 15 minutes later, he'd come in. A lot happens in a short period of time there, you know, the, uh, the pull the guys out of the water and all that sort of stuff, because we wouldn't have done that unless the firing had stopped on the beach. And we had nowhere to go because we'd lost everything anyway. So we pulled the guys that were, some of the guys were hitting the waters, pulled them out of the water. And we, what we worried about, the tanks were going to come in. 
and tanks may run over. They wouldn't see the bodies. They would just run right over them. So we we pull as many as we could, as far as we could. And once we started doing a few, the other guys did too that lost their stuff. But the main infantry companies, they had pushed forward already. They'd already pushed forward to their next objective. We're there. A couple of guys were stuck out in the in the water. The waves were going over them, and they were on these uh, on obstacles in the water. And my brother Jack said, he, he asked one of them, he went over to one of the bulldozers who were doing his job, he said, are you able to go out in that water and help those guys in the, in the water? Because they were, when you're out in the water and your waves are coming over, you're hanging on, you're not going to try and jump in and go into shore. So the, the bulldozer went out and he put the blade out, the guys grabbed onto the, the blade and he backed out, back into shore and they got into shore that way. That was a little bit of a rescue operation by the bulldozer. Yeah. Norm Kirby was a Bren gunner who landed near Bernier-sur-Mer with the North Shore New Brunswick Regiment. He was fortunate to make it ashore at all. I had been on boats before, so I knew my way around. So I wasn't too excited about it or concerned. The landing craft is a different, different matter. Um... We had all our gear, and I had a Bren gun and a bunch of ammunition and a couple of guys with me carrying more ammo. Um, we, uh, we didn't have life preservers as such, but we had uh, flak jackets, no Kelvar in those days. You had a canvas sack on the front and one on the back with a steel plate in it. And I think the two of them weighed close to 40 pounds, so I knew that if anything happened, uh, I wasn't going to be able to even wade ashore with that. So I dumped it. I took my ammunition pouches and stuff off. And, and uh, when the uh, landing craft hit a, hit a mine and went down, I was able to swim. And I got to shore okay, and I didn't do anything that day. I, I uh, got to shore, no weapons, no nothing. I had a knife, fork, and spoon. And later on, people said, well, you must have heard about the French cooking and be prepared, but that wasn't the reason. Mines also slowed down the infantry's tank support. Captain Bob Grant with the Fort Gary horse led his Sherman tank crew ashore at Bernier-sur-Mer. Well, they took us in. I think we might have been a couple of hundred yards offshore when we finally went in the water. And... and it was light by then, and we had to, they had these hedgehogs in the water with mines on them. We had to weave around between those, and while all this was going on, it made us a little bit late. Had we been on time and on the beach, pushed the button, dropped those screens, if we'd done that before they got there, we could have had all those machine guns that were firing at them had their heads down, and we would have saved dozens and dozens of lives but we were a little bit late and these poor guys in the Queen's Own were cut down The Queen's Own rifles took the most casualties of any Canadian regiment on D-Day One of the Queen's Own to land that day was Dave Arxey. Dave describes the landing craft used by the assault battalions and shares his experience of landing in the second wave And the ramps actually on the 
they were all metal on the front, so they gave quite a bit of protection from small arms fire. The only problem was all the rest of the boat was wood. You hear your guns pop and you hear you watching the sides. Thirty. Three rows of ten. And a naval officer was in charge, and a naval rating was his assistant, and I guess the guy that drove the craft, etc., etc. We were told whatever he said, you do. Our company was in the second wave. We went in with probably be 745, about 15 minutes later and well, we had been definitely told you don't stop for anything like we figured we'd have probably 50 yards of water to go through and then we had about 175 yards of sand till we got to the wall and there again we were very very fortunate well, directly ahead of where we landed, the wall had been breached, and that's we all went in that way. While the battle raged on the beach, Allied pilots overhead maintained a protective screen against German planes. Flying officer Richard Romer and squadron leader Stocky Edwards had bird's-eye views of the proceedings. It's three o'clock in the morning. Uh, we're up. We were tasked to to get airborne and uh, go across to Kham uh, to do a, a reconnaissance over Kham uh, and then come back to the beach and go up and down the beach. Uh, we got airborne just at dawn because we had to operate in light. Did a reconnaissance at Kham. Uh, and on the way across, of course, we flew over hundreds of uh, ships. And this it was a windy day, high overcast. Uh, and when we got to Khan, we had to go under the cloud because there was a wall of cloud uh, at the beach. So we had to go under it. Got forced down to about 500 feet. We then came back up the Orne, and there in front of us at what we now call Pegasus Bridge, we could see these great Horsa gliders that had come in uh, in the morning. Uh, and that's a fantastic story in itself. But there were these gliders at a place called Ranville. And then we went up and down the British and Canadian beaches just as the first landing craft were coming in. The most fantastic sight uh, I've ever seen. Uh, and we were at 500 feet. We had to be because of the height of the cloud doing our recce and out to sea, uh, the great band of black smoke and blinking lights in the black smoke. And of course, those were the battleships firing at exactly where we were. And we never even, I never even thought about it, but. The targets were right underneath us, and we were, in, in effect, flying through a hail of huge shells. But it never, I was too dumb, it didn't occur to me. But we went back and forth, uh, up and down the beach. We watched the uh, 
uh, landing craft, the first landing craft came in Queen's Zone and all of the Canadians came into their beach as we went back and forth. Anyway, that was D-Day morning. Uh, I then did one more trip in the uh, afternoon. And, and it was a big day, really big day. We weren't prepared to see the number of ships, and boats and aircraft and gliders that they saw that stretched from coast to coast. And we hadn't, we weren't on the early show, so, so, but they were going, that had been going on for several hours by this time. You could easily make out what, what was happening on the beach. And then the water was very rough down there. They were putting people off in, in, in the window, which should be shallow and deep, and they're going underwater with the tanks and, and troops with their gear on. But other than that, uh, there were lots of good, good things, and the landing was a success. But there were a lot of, a lot of suffering from it. I was a squadron commander. Uh, and our job as Spitfires was to, uh, to cover the, the, the troops landing and the crossing and make sure the Huns didn't get through. But they didn't, which of course would be a bit of a, a disappointment uh, and uh, also lucky. As Juneau Beach fell to the assault troops, its sands became stained with the blood of wounded and dying men. Some of these casualties were rescued and ferried back to the fleet aboard whatever landing craft could still sail. George Van Haff, aboard HMCS Prince David, recalls when the first casualties arrived. I would think probably about 9 o'clock they brought that first guy back in one of the landing craft, and the only way they could get him on board was to lash him in one of those Neil Robson stretchers and hoist him on board like a sack of potatoes. And they dropped him on the quarter deck, and he was... He was that color. He was, he was, he bled to death. It makes you wonder how many more there are going to be before the day's out. And there was quite a few. They brought a barge alongside and shortly after that. And uh, I'm down there helping them put them in the stretchers and, and tie the stretchers up so they could hoist them inboard. And I remember one great big British Army sergeant. Ooh, he was, he must have been a 250 pounder. And he was walking up and down. So I thought, I wonder what the hell's wrong with him. Doesn't seem to be anything wrong with him, see. So as he walked past me as I'm secure in this stretcher, I looked up and there was a patch on the back of his head that had been blown off. So I thought, oh my God. Any minute now, shock's going to set in and he's going to faint, see. So as soon as I finished with this stretcher and gave him the okay to take it up on deck, why well, I, uh, I said to this guy, I said, because uh, they have scrambling nets down, see. So guys that couldn't make it. Maybe they had a, one arm in a sling and they could help him up. So I said, come along with me. I said, i got to get you on board. Oh, no. He said, I'm all right. He said, you attend to these guys first. I said, well, I'm going to give you a hand up that me give him a hand. <laughs> I probably weigh as much now then as I did then, you know, about 130 pounds. So anyway, I, uh, he was convinced that there was nothing wrong with him. Nothing. He didn't need any help. So I called a couple of seamen to come down and give him a hand. And I, what I was afraid of was that his big boots would slip through one of those squares on that scrambling net. If he did, he'd have just gone down on a wacko with him. But the last time I saw him, he was on deck, so on. And I never saw him again. And then I had one army major 
in a, another stretcher. And I said, what happened to you, sir? Well, he said, I was all through the North African campaign, through the Italian campaign, and they drew me back for this show. And he said, I was on the beach a half an hour when a big shell went off close to me and broke my back. So he said, I guess I'm out of it for now. So after this, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, why we had finished unloading the second barge, and I wouldn't like to say maybe he had 70 or 80 wounded, dead, dying, or wounded on board. So he stuck out and went back. We are heading for Southampton. But when we got there, there was an air raid on, and we couldn't go in. We had to wait until the next morning. A French-Canadian battalion, Le Régiment de la Chaudière, landed in France that day. French-Canadian CBC war correspondent Marcel Humet was determined to record the first meeting of a Frenchman and one of Canada's Francophone soldiers. They were waiting for us. Some of them had been waiting for 40 years. And to some French-speaking Canadian soldiers, it was just like coming home. The accent of Normandy, so prevalent in Canada, could be heard everywhere. To this day, I shall never forget how a white-haired man whose name was Paul Martin approached a soldier from the Régiment de la Chaudière whose shoulder patch were clearly legible despite the wet landing he'd had to make. You speak French, my friend, he said to the dark-haired French-Canadian. Un petit peu. A little, the young man from Trois Pistoles answered. And where are you going? Où vas-tu? À Paris, peut-être. To Paris, perhaps. The Canadian shrugged his shoulders. Like all of his buddies, he was starkly conscious of the need for security. And so he answered vaguely, Dead back we, which literally means in English, well, perhaps, yes. But is in French a corruption of five words? Peut-être bien que oui. Perhaps it is so, yes. And is it an expression which was taken to Canada by his Norman ancestors? and which still is very current in Normandy itself. With these words, tears streaked down Monsieur Paul Martin's face. He grabbed the Canadian by the shoulders. And as the French from overseas are wont to do, he kissed the bearded and muddy soldier on both cheeks. You're not a Canadian, he said. You're a Frenchman. You're a Norman, just like I am. Many others were to be greeted in similar fashion. French-Canadian soldiers in khaki, loyal subjects of His Majesty the King who had gone back to the land of their ancestors to help in its liberation and thus eventually protect their own country, Canada. The tanks, infantry, and engineers came ashore first, but they were soon followed by the artillery regiments. Garth Webb, who we last heard describing the excitement and anticipation for the landings, picks up his story. Our schedule was H plus 90. We were to land. We fired while the first guys landed, and we turned around and came back in, and we landed. So we were an hour and a half after the first ones. It was bedlam, and uh, there again, I was too busy. I didn't go. I didn't have time to go looking around. And by we moved around that day, and by evening, we were more or less settled. And that's when the SDGs were reinforcement. And we're back at this churchyard waiting to get ourselves better organized. And they arrived, and they're going up 
the street and uh, the, the the pipers, <clears throat> and it's amazing, eh? You, it, it really gets to you. Those pipers, you felt like falling in and going and getting killed with the rest of them. So where were those pipers going? The Canadian Army had a critical role to play on D-Day. Their job was to search inland to a rail line linking Caen in the east and Bayeux in the west. It was codenamed Oak. Here they would deploy defenses and await the expected German counterattack. In segment four, correspondents and veterans share their experiences as the longest day concluded. Canadian troops, after some delays due to the heavy buildup of military vehicle traffic exiting the beaches and through the small coastal towns, continued the advance. Despite heavy casualties on the beach, Dave Arxey's Queen's Own Rifles took all of their D-Day objectives. And then we kept on going until, I guess, I think we were in about seven kilometers. And that's where we were supposed to get on D-Day. And the Canadians were the only ones to reach our objective on D-Day. And that's where we were supposed to get. You could expect 50% casualties on the landing or the day, whatever. And uh, we actually, we wound up with one-third. Private Arnaud England, an infantry reinforcement on D-Day, recalls how his new unit was short on men after fighting through tough beach defenses at Corsol-sur-Mer. I didn't know when I went into action D-Day, I didn't know what an artillery shell sounded like coming in and exploding. I didn't know what a mortar bomb sounded like. I had none of that training. I wasn't trained. Now, the boys that were in England, like my brother, they were in England a couple of years. Well, we were just as frontline reinforcements. So we had to wait till the, till the landing craft came back. After we got ashore... We get up in the hill of peace, and they told us to dig in just in case that the, the war was in a mile or so away. Next thing, Bergeron come hauling again, England, come on, go on, we're giant rifle from there. This time, we grabbed our equipment with the double, so we get in with the giant rifles. So we went right up then to B Company. They wanted to take a little town, and they had taken such a beating that the major didn't think he could he could take the town until he got reinforcements. The Canadians did not reach the Oak Line on D-Day. By the evening of June 6th, the Canadians were well on their way to their D-Day objectives, but the attack was not progressing as quickly in other sectors. The Americans at Omaha Beach had a tenuous foothold, and the British at Gold Beach had yet to link up with them. Meanwhile, a counterattack by 21st Panzer Division made it to the coast between Juneau Beach and Sword Beach to the east. The Canadians advanced further inland than any other Allied force on D-Day. Trooper Hugh Buckley of the Sherbrooke Fusiliers was in the vanguard. Um, by the time I landed, the beaches were free. There were dead bodies around, but uh, we were not um, we were not fired upon heavily. Some very light fire. Now our job, we had been told that our our target was the city of Calm, and that was to be taken in 24 hours. The arrowhead was Canadian. And I say to myself, I think the reason it was 
was because every Canadian soldier there was a volunteer. And we being in the reconnaissance part, our, our job was to secure a harbor for the, for the uh, regiment. And the preferential harbor was Carpiquet Airport. He said, halted the tank. We were on a sort of slope. And he said, I can see the airport. He said, well, we, let's go home. We'll, we'll be reported in person. And we then headed back to the coast. I, I think historically now when I got told the history of, of where all these things happened, that um, in fact um, nobody got that far that day than our little tank. Our, our defense was speed. We came back down the road. We were on the, now this time going back, we thought things would be clear going back. We didn't realize we were behind the German lines and farther behind than I realized at that time. And it wasn't until I met the historian that I realized we had passed their headquarters actually. At approximately 7 p.m., Lieutenant General Sir Miles Dempsey, commander of the Anglo-Canadian Landing Forces for D-Day, ordered the Canadians to dig in at Elm, their intermediate objective. They would continue the advance in the morning. On their part of the front, to the east, 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion was tasked with defending a significant crossroads at Le Mesnil, Private John de Vries explains how his day finally came to an end. It was late in the day when we arrived at the place uh, where our defense position was. Uh, after all the action was over, we carried out the objectives. Everybody was to gather in uh, where a predetermined place where we were to dig in and set up a defensive position. With the beach cleared of the enemy... CBC correspondent Matthew Halton came ashore. He observed beach parties turning the place into a link in an ever-expanding logistical chain, reaching back to England. I've been through many battles, but I was never as excited as when my time came to go ashore. For this was France, and the beginning of the end. The rough, swirling tide carried our assault craft over the obstacles, and we jumped into, into more water than we expected six feet of it, so I had to swim a yard or two with my pack and waterproof typewriter before I could wade to shore. Then the struggle across the soft sand. Five minutes that will always be vivid in my mind. A few shells were falling on the beaches, a few mines still exploding. The whole beach covered with small craft. Men at work organizing the beaches already. Bulldozers widening the exits and laying the wire carpet. Ammunition and tanks and supplies and vehicles and guns coming ashore as far as the eye could see on that strange historic morning. In the sands, the dead who had made it possible. The first German prisoners sitting in slit trenches, some sullen, some smiling. The wounded Canadians. 
and everywhere the soldiers and vehicles rolling forward into battle and down the little lovely lanes of Normandy. And the first German aircraft diving in at last to drop a few bombs and open up on us with their cannon guns. At first glance you'd have said, looking at that beach, what an unbelievable pandemonium. But there was no pandemonium. There was order and organization and skill as well as heroism. Everything planned to the most minute detail and working smoothly there on the beaches of France. And they had to work smoothly. This was only the beginning. The great battles were to come. I went over the beach and down a lane with Major Roy Oliver, a British officer whom I'd been with in Tobruk and at Alamein, and my friend Captain Placide Labelle. We spoke to the first civilian we saw. He was an Italian. Then I saw men, women, and children taking shelter behind a hedge. I went over to them. They embraced me, and I made an absurd little speech in French. We went on down the lane, and I saw a French woman putting roses on the face of a dead Canadian. I went into a house to start writing. A woman brought me eggs and strawberries and cream. In a half days, I began to write. We had broken in. We were in France. D-Day ended as a huge success, both for Canada and its allies. The free nations of the world now had a foothold in France for the first time in nearly four years. German troops, led by Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, would attempt to throw the Allies back into the sea on subsequent days. Then, their counterattacks spent, they would try to contain the Allies in Normandy. It would take 75 more days for General Dwight Eisenhower's combined land, sea, and air forces to destroy two German armies and thereby liberate Normandy and almost all of France. But D-Day was the beginning of the end. Without this victory, won by the courage of the average Canadian soldier, sailor, or airman, in cooperation with those of over a dozen other Allied nations, the great victories of 1944 and 1945 would not have been possible. We hope you have enjoyed Canada's D-Day story, featuring the voices of those who witnessed one of the most formative events of the 20th century. Before we go, we must once again thank Blake Heathcote with Testaments of Honor and Don Foster with Legacy of Honor for capturing the veterans' memories featured here. You can find the Legacy of Honor videos on our website, junobeach.org. Just search Legacy of Honor. For the Testaments of Honor interviews, go to definingmomentscanada.ca. The remaining Second World War veterans are now well into their 90s and will not be with us for much longer. Capturing their memories is crucial to ensuring that the collective memory of what happened at Juno Beach never fades. For more content about Canada in the Second World War, follow us on social media or subscribe to Juno Beach and Beyond on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcast. I'm Alex Black. On behalf of the Juno Beach Center, thanks for listening. <laughs>